Good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Manitoba Farm Journal. I'm your host, Corey Canute. Coming up this afternoon, we'll hear from Greg Northey with Pulse Canada. And up first in today's country comment, we'll have details on a Manitoba solution to growing global demand for food-grade soybeans. The latest farm news and market numbers all coming up over the next 60 minutes. The time now is 12 o'clock. Here's a look at our local news. Good afternoon. You're listening to the Manitoba Farm Journal. Savita International is partnering with Manitoba farmers to produce Savita's proprietary food-grade soybeans for high-value markets around the world, including Asia, Europe, Africa, and North America. I caught up with business manager Sandy Hart. Savita is a a Canadian fully integrated uh, soybean company. Um, We've been operating in eastern Canada for over 25 years, um, and we first uh, started seed production on our new uh, G, uh, non-GMO, sorry, food-grade varieties for Western Canada in um, in 2019, um, and that project has been uh, driven by a, a business initiative to expand our footprints across uh, Canada, um, as well as having some success in developing some high-yielding early maturity genetics um, that have some qualities that are highly sought after in uh, in food markets uh, around the world. So it's more driven of a desire to uh, to expand our business to uh, to take advantage of uh, of a market that um, that is looking for high quality Canadian uh, food grade beans. And uh, you know what in what types of foods are these uh, beans um, being used in? Sure, so our our, uh, our core export markets are in Asia, so they're used in the uh, the more traditional soy foods, um, so your your tofu, miso, soy milk um, and some natto products. Um, we, we are seeing expanding interest in uh, soybeans for for use in um, in like imitation meats, miracle meats, that uh, that sort of thing. Um, but but by far um, the, the majority of the of the production that we uh, that we procure that we uh, produce as Savita is is used in the manufacturing of those um, of those longstanding soy foods overseas. And how many acres are being grown in Manitoba? In Manitoba, there was uh, just over 1.3 million acres of, of soybeans grown uh, last year, and, um, and in the 20, 25,000 range was, uh, was non-GMO. So it's a relatively insignificant um, segment of the overall market for soybeans from a producer perspective, um, but it is very high value, um, and, and we do expect it to grow on the backs of, uh, of demand for Canadian beans. Um, as, as well as our ability to bring out some some products that are going to perform um, in in Western Canada and still give the food markets what they're looking for. Now, for the farmer, what's uh, what's different about uh, growing food grade? Sure. Um, so, the, the, a few things like the the one that uh, you know comes top of mind for pretty well everybody is um, you have limited tools in terms of uh, weed control. Um, so, so non-GMO, you, you can't uh, spray Roundup just to, to keep the weeds down throughout the growing season. Um, you've got to be m- much more proactive, put a, a pre-emerge product down um, prior to planting or certainly prior to the crop coming out of the ground. Um, but there are, there are certainly tools out there, and we've had good experience with, uh, with producers who've been diligent about their weed control and keeping them down and not giving up yield due to uh, competition from weeds. Um, the other piece of it is um, it is an identity preserve program that Savita runs. So the uh, the acres of the variety that you grow um, on a contract with us need to be segregated and stored separately. And, and that's um, about keeping them separate from other crop kinds as well as certainly uh, GMO soybeans um, because the end user perceives particular value in, in that variety. And that's what supports the premium price that we pay the grower. So they need to make sure that they uh, that they keep the crop separate. 
and there's some light record keeping and uh, and traceability requirements that go along with that as well. With the drought last year, how did the crop turn out? Uh, poor yielding, uh, but the quality was fairly reasonable, um, which which is good. I mean, with the uh, the severity of the drought that uh, that you guys experienced last year, like uh, yields weren't great across all crop kinds. Um, we were concerned um, in the latter part of the growing season when it when it became apparent how tough things were um, that we were going to have some protein issues, and and thankfully we did not. Um, which is which is great. That means that the producers were able to get the uh, the price that they intended when they signed up um, because the beans met the specs in our contract, and that tells me um, that we're that we're doing a good job of developing varieties that are going to work um, for a Western program. And just going forward. Um Talk about what you're expecting uh, as far as the uh, expansion here in the years to come. Sure. Um, so, so we're you know we're we're expecting first to to, to grow the uh, the acreage base and um, and bring some new products out. Um, we're focused on uh, on the southern uh, southern part of Manitoba right now. Um, that's where we've been having the the most success. Uh, both in terms of uh, of product performance from a yield and quality perspective, as well as there's a lot of really great growers um, around your your area that have experience with say peas or or other um, edible beans, um, and there's some production similarities there with with IP soybeans for sure. So we're looking to to take advantage of uh, some producers that are that are already um, you know comfortable with what we're asking them to do in terms of best practices and and like I said, keeping things separate, managing the weeds. Um, and things of that nature. That was Sandy Hart, business manager with Savita International. A look at what's happening in the markets this afternoon is coming up. Good afternoon, I'm Corey Canute. The governments of Canada and Manitoba are expanding the eligibility of expenses under the Livestock Feed and Transportation Drought Assistance Program. Minister of Agriculture and Agri-Food Marie-Claude Abibo and Manitoba Agriculture Minister Derek Johnson announced the addition of extraordinary expenses producers incurred in accessing feed, water and pasture as part of the program to address the challenges faced throughout the drought in 2021. Under the Canadian Agricultural Partnership, the Livestock Feed and Transportation Drought Assistance Program was established to help producers purchase and test feed for livestock to maintain their breeding herds, including through the transport of purchased feed from distant locations. Among the additional extraordinary costs now covered are expenditures related to rentals of additional crop or pasture acres, temporary fencing for supplemental grazing, hauling water, harvesting extra acres, or hauling self-produced feed from distant locations. A supply chain task force was announced this week as part of the National Supply Chain Summit, Greg Cherwick, president of Pulse Canada, talked about what he would like to see come out of the task force. Look at the supply chain from end to end, from origin to destination. How does product flow? Uh, what are the uh, key exchanges between different players? Where does the system tend to break down? What are the bottlenecks and choke points? What are the vulnerabilities? And if we can understand where those things typically fail and use good information and evidence and data to inform that analysis, then we can look at what the right mix of solutions might be to fix some of those problems. And yesterday was World Wetlands Day. Josh Dillabaugh with the Nature Conservancy of Canada talked about the benefits of wetlands. They are a water source during drought times. They filter our water. They are amazing for biodiversity. They support one-third of biodiversity all across Canada and North America. So most wildlife within Canada, at some point in time, their life cycle is affected by wetlands. So these are key, key habitats to not just 
people, but animals, plants, insects, everything. Canada is home to 25% of the world's wetlands. That was a look at today's farm news. I'm Corey Canute. Good afternoon and welcome to the Prairie Eggwire for Thursday, February 3rd. I'm Corey Canute. Coming up today, we'll hear from Greg Northey with Pulse Canada. There's been a growing concern around the containerized supply chain for the agriculture sector. Greg Northey, Director of Industry Relations with Pulse Canada, talked about the issue during last week's Sask Pulse Winter Meeting. Glenda Lee Allen Vossler tuned in for the virtual event where he explained what's been happening. Every year, about 45% uh, or in and in around there of, of our exports are in container. And so it's an extremely important supply chain for the sector. Um, we have, you know, entire uh, industries built to to uh, provide service to it. So I'm thinking here of, say, transloaders in Vancouver and Montreal, who are, you know, their primary business is, is just uh, moving uh, pulses from from either uh domestic containers into into ocean containers or from hopper cars into ocean containers so it's it's just very important and this is why we're we spend as you'll you'll see quite a bit of time in, in trying to address some of these disruptions we've seen so what has been happening and it's been a bit of a um a long period and it it all sort of began or at least the most acute problems we're seeing began with uh, the the early pandemic lockdowns and even a bit before that, once uh, when COVID first hit China and factories were shutting down, but the lockdowns plus the factory shutdowns, uh, you know, world trade dropped, you know, incredibly. It was unprecedented drop, um, and what we saw was shipping lines. So the, the 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 owners of the vessels that move containers, you know, started to to cancel a lot of sailings. We saw a lot of blank sailings. Um, Unfortunately, at that time, there was a huge demand for for pulses and food generally. Uh, even though all the the economies were shut down, there was this uh, a surge in, in desire for pulses. So at that point, we were initially impacted by just blank sailings. Just there was not any ships moving uh, and and around. And then once we saw the lockdowns end and we saw a surge in consumer spending, it was kind of the whip whiplash effect where that imbalance that we saw with containers around the world, uh, it, it, it hit a lot. And, and, chi- and China and, and Asia were, there's this explosion of in demand of goods and goods from, from those areas. And they needed to have containers there extremely quickly to, to fill up with uh, consumer goods, TVs, et cetera, to come back to North America and Europe. And so, there is this uh, uh, huge demand to get containers back to, to China very quickly. Um, and it was around that time where container, container prices would have gone for, for people wanting to ship, you know, TVs from China to North America. Usually they would have paid, you know, around $10,000 a container and around there, you know, it went to almost $30,000 per container. And so, you know, there was just this, this incredible demand. And at that point in that fall, uh, the pulse sector was just really unable to access empty containers. They just weren't available uh, for, for use. And that trend is, has continued, but with some new wrinkles now in, in, 20, in 2021, as we move into 2022, is that the shipping lines, the owners of, of, of the shipping lines, they, they realized that um, by adjusting their capacity allocation, by adjusting how they how they uh, function, demand, matching uh, supply with demand a little bit more, 
and realizing where the the money was, where they were making their their biggest profits, they really started to systematically change their business models, um, deprioritizing exports, uh, raising costs, and for them changing routes, withholding service, and to the point now where containers are around, but they're at uh, really incredible prices. And even if you're willing to pay it, you get your product loaded in a container. Um, you won't necessarily get on a ship uh, because they're just deprioritized. So they'll just sit around for months and months on end waiting to get on a ship. You'll get rolled and rolled and rolled. And so it's it's a bit of the perfect storm where everything we saw before, whether it's vessel, uh, vessel availability or container availability, it's now sort of a systematic um, problem that we have where uh, it's just not the service for, for export containers. Greg Northey is the Director of Industry Relations with Pulse Canada. More information on his discussion around the containerized supply chain can be found on the SAS Pulse website. For Golden West, I'm Glendalee Allen Mossler. Thanks, Glendalee. That's it for the Prairie Eggwire for today. If you have any questions or opinions to share, send them to us by email to farmdesk at goldenwest.ca. On behalf of Glendalee Allen Vossler, I'm Corey Canute. Thanks for listening and have a great afternoon. The Prairie Eggwire will return tomorrow on the Golden West Farm Network. Time now for a look at the farm calendar. The Direct Farm Marketing Conference takes place this week online. Visit directfarmmanitoba.ca for information. An online beekeeping for the hobbyist course takes place every Wednesday starting at 7 o'clock. That'll last until March 30th. The cost, $230. You can register with the University of Manitoba Faculty of Agriculture and Food Sciences. Manitoba Beef Producers is hosting its 43rd annual general meeting online February 10th. And with Crop Connect being cancelled this year, there are a number of individual virtual AGMs going on. Manitoba Pulse and Soybean Growers will have theirs February 16th at 9 a.m. Manitoba Oat Growers February 16th at 1 p.m. Manitoba Canola Growers February 17th at 9 a.m. And the Manitoba Crop Alliance AGM takes place February 17th at 1 p.m. Go to each individual organization's website to register. Continuing with the Manitoba Farm Journal here on this Thursday afternoon, Scott Herrer spoke recently at the Manitoba Forage Seed Association Annual Forage Seed Seminar. Scott is the Vice President of Columbia Seeds, based in Oregon. He talked about changing markets and production dynamics in the seed industry. Production in Oregon is, is quite diverse, but uh, focusing in on the grass seed, there's about 400 to 425,000 acres in any given year in production. Annual ryegrass um, in the South Valley. Um, you see the perennial ryegrass here uh, at about 75,000 acres. It kind of fluctuates between 65 and 75 lately. And tall fescue at 142,000 acres is, is a pretty strong number. Um, but that tall fescue is, is probably the crop of choice uh, these days because it's longevity and um, consistent production and pricing. You see legumes in here and hazelnuts and hemp. This is from the survey, USDA survey in 2018. Unfortunately, um, some of the more current survey results aren't out yet because of COVID delays. And here's just focusing on tall fescue and perennial ryegrass. Um, perennial ryegrass has been kind of declining for the last decade, and most of that's being um, supplemented with the Minnesota cannabis production. And tall fescue, you can see here, is continually increased and is probably staying steady around that 135, 140 thousand acres. 
why why the Pacific Northwest? Well, it's it's all about the climate. Um, we're wet in the spring and winter. Uh, we're dry in the summer. The temperatures are moderate, so in the wintertime, yeah, we may hit freezing, but typically we're 45 for a high and 35 for a low. In the summertime, you know, it's 85 degrees for a high Fahrenheit and 55 to 60 for a low. So very moderate temperatures. Um, we don't get a lot of moisture, but we have very adequate moisture. And for three months in the summer, we dry out and typically don't get any rain. We have a wide range of soil types that is also beneficial for the many species. You know, uh, and ryegrass likes the heavy clay soils, the fine fescues, like the uh, the rich red clay soils up in the Silverton Hills, and then the uh, rich loams for the prairie ryegrass, tall fescue, and vegetable crops in the North Valley. Conditions ideal for grass seed production is also ideal for other crops, particularly specialty crops. Um, Going back to uh, moisture and summertime, so we swath at night. They typically start around 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock at night, and we'll swath till 6 a.m. The reason is there's more dew to help the seed stay, to prevent the seed from shattering um, from the seed head. So then during the day, you know, once it's in the swath for a minimum of seven days, then they go in and start harvesting um, say around 11 o'clock in the morning and we'll go till between 6 and 8 at night depending on when the dew starts picking up. Um, it's not flat land here as you can see. Um, we do have hillside combines um, that uh, particularly in the Sewerton Hills and, and on the west side of the valley as well. <clears throat> top, top egg product, products in Oregon, um, greenhouse nursery is been number one for as long as I can remember. Uh, you see cattle, calves, hay, milk, but grass is always kind of in that fifth slot. And then down below here, we're starting to see hazelnuts crop up and become more of a factor. Blueberries is very steady. Um, wheat, particularly on the east side of the state, is 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 very popular. But if the commodity price is right, it is also ideal in the valley because it's an easy crop to grow and um, much easier than grass seed. So farmers, if the price is right, farmers will typically switch to wheat. That was Scott Herrer. He's the vice president of Columbia Seeds based in Oregon. He spoke recently at the Manitoba Forage Seed Association annual forage seed seminar. Another look at what's happening in the markets heading into the close is coming up in just a moment. Time now for another look at today's farm news. World Wetlands Day was celebrated yesterday. Josh Dillabaugh with the Nature Conservancy of Canada talked about the work they're doing in southwestern Manitoba. We've done quite a bit of work in the last few years within the Douglas Marsh. So uh, we now have around 300 hectares uh, within the Douglas Marsh. So it's a unique wetland in itself, that it's kind of that ephemeral flow-through system. It's an old oxbow of the Assiniboine River. Um, it does support yellow rails, and we've been working really hard um, and had great support from the local community in Brandon and also the uh, central Assiniboine Watershed District. So our partners are invested in the area as well, too. Canada is home to 25% of the world's wetlands. And this week's National Supply Chain Summit included the announcement of a supply chain task force. Greg Cherwick, president of Pulse Canada, talked about what he would like to see come out of the task force. First of all, we think there's an opportunity to get people into the same room that, that are part of that supply chain. 
and look for some immediate or, or short-term solutions that, that would benefit the stakeholders. So often what happens when you pull everybody into the same room, you'll find out that there are things that motivate different players in different ways and that they don't completely appreciate and understand how some of the processes that they have in place frustrate other players in the system. I'll be back after this to wrap up today's program. We've come to the end of another Manitoba Farm Journal. I'm your host, Corey Canute. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach us by email, thefarmdesk at goldenwest.ca. Today's closing numbers with more in-depth commentary on what's happening in the markets is coming up at 10 to 2 on the Markets Farm Program. Coming up on tomorrow's show, we'll hear from Manitoba Beef Producers General Manager Carson Callum. Thanks for listening and have a great afternoon. Hope you can join us back here tomorrow starting at 12 noon.